0: Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at wwwrestorationlexcom slash this week. Appreciate you there, but one of the things I wanted to point out is, yeah, yeah. I mean, yesterday people showed up in my house, people from our church to make sure that we had stuff. My fence blew down. That was about it. And I know there was some folks who were cutting down trees and helping everyone out. If you are someone here who is in need in any way because of the storm, whether that be you need help moving things, debris, um, trees, you you need help because your power's out and you don't have any food, please let us know. Church is not a service It's not a, an hour on Sunday church. Is family, and we want to be family to one another. I've already seen that happen in the last couple of days in the lives of so many here, and if that's a need you have, please let us help you in wherever you're at in that situation. So really glad you are here. I'm going to do something this morning and next Sunday as well that I have never done before, so bear with me. I'm going to preach a sermon in two parts now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to do two sermons in one day. So you'll get to have lunch today, I promise. I'm not that guy, not that guy, pal. Um, but the, the the first part I'm preaching today, and then the next one next week. Now, if, if you're thinking, good grief, here goes one of those gimmicks, I promise you this is not a gimmick. It is not one of those uh, preachery things. What it is, if your antenna's up for that sort of thing, is that The Gospel of John sets this up so perfectly with John 3 and John 4 uh, with encounters with Jesus, two separate encounters, these individuals that really contrast one another. They serve as juxtapositions that speaks to who Jesus is, that speaks to how he's revealing himself to us. John 3 and John 4 are like peanut butter and jelly. They're like pizza and beer. Like you can enjoy them on their own, but they go so well together, right? They are perfect. And I think you're gonna be able to see this as we jump in here together. We heard John 3 this morning. Look on the screen here with me. If it's, uh, we have screens working. Praise you, Jesus. So. Look on the screen here. We have John 3 and John 4. In John 3, there's a religious insider. In John 4, we see a religious outsider. In John 3, the person that Jesus meets is Jewish. In John 4, they're Samaritan. John 3, they're powerful. One, and the the next one's powerless. A male, a female. Jesus meets someone in the middle of the night. In John 3... In John 4, he meets a person in the middle of the day. There's something going on here. John is intentionally calling our attention to something. And I think the question we're being called to ask in this gospel as he's writing to us is, what does it actually mean to be saved? Now... I don't know if that's a question you've asked before or if you've not asked that question because you already figured it out. You think you figured it out at least. But I want to ask that question once again afresh these next couple of weeks. And at least, at the the very least, pretend like we don't know the answer to that and see if we can see something that we have not been able to see. Before. So we begin today as we just heard in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. And look with me here on the screen. It says, Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. So, what do we know about Nicodemus from this? We know first that he was a Pharisee, meaning he was a part of a group of very passionate, social. Of Reform, reformers, populist reformers that felt that Israel had lost their way, and if they had simply obeyed all of the Mosaic law and the traditions, that they'd be saved. They believed that everybody in Israel would just simply keep the law, then the Messiah would come. But he wasn't just a Pharisee; he was a Pharisee with power, we see. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, meaning he not only was a religious leader, he could leverage that power on behalf of his convictions against and for things that he felt were standing in the way of reform, of getting our act together as a nation. Now, he was likely known very well, and he was likely very influential in the community. And yet, he comes to Jesus at night. We're meant to ask, why is he coming at night? Now, there's a lot of of opinions about why this may be, uh, why he would have this conversation with Jesus, and I think for the most part, what I, I see here is it's not a confrontation, it's not a public spectacle, because as we see through the Gospels, Pharisees love to have the conversation as a means of really just creating a scene creating a spectacle. So he comes in the dark, I believe, because this is an opportunity for something real. This is an opportunity outside of his actual life that gives him a chance to meet Jesus where he is. It also saves his reputation because if a man of influence and power is seen meeting with Jesus that probably causes people to ask some questions. Here's what it continues to say. It says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now, notice here he says, we. We know that you are a teacher, meaning that Jesus has already been the topic of conversation amongst the powerful and influential. They had come to the conclusion, based upon their evidence, based upon putting their heads together and seeing these miracles and what Jesus was teaching, that, yes, we have decided from on high that you are from God. This was legit. But Jesus answers in a way that doesn't actually respond to Nicodemus's question, which is quite a common tactic for Jesus. It says, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. He's entering this conversation with the assumption that he already has Jesus, figured out, that he could fit Jesus and his thoughts and teachings into an already formed worldview where he was. He could fit Jesus within the convictions that he already held, and yet Jesus enters into his affirmations and completely upends these ideas that he has about him. He undermines the expectations that Nicodemus has. He places him back at square one. If Nicodemus really wanted to see what God was doing, he'd have to be born again. What does it mean, my friends, to be born again? That is the question. New Testament scholar Craig Keener, he points out, in Jesus' time, if you were a Gentile, in order for you to become a practicing Jewish person, they'd have to be immersed in water in order to wash away all of their Gentile, non-Jewish impurities. And so later Jewish teachers, they taught that as they did this, they were like a newborn child. They left everything they used to know about their life behind, and they stepped into a new life of practicing as a faithful Jew. Now, Nicodemus didn't have to do that because he was born into this. He was an insider. He was already from birth Jewish. He didn't even have to have an old life to leave behind because he had already arrived. Now, hopefully this helps you understand the challenge of Jesus's words to Nicodemus. You want to be saved? You want to find salvation from God, Nicodemus? Lay down those credentials. Everything you thought you knew about God, leave it behind. Lay down the status that has come with your religious affiliation. Go back to the very beginning. Go back to the start and be born again. I hope you see the challenge of these words. The same is true for us. Whatever we think it means to be a Christian, it starts here. It starts by you and I having the willingness to actually lay down what we thought we knew about God in light of Jesus. To be born again, I would define it as the ability to unlearn and relearn everything in light of Jesus. The ability to step into an entirely different framework for how we understand God How we understand ourselves, how we understand our neighbors, and how we understand the world. Everything in light of Jesus must be unlearned and then relearned based upon him. Jesus continues speaking to him. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at the saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If you did not know, the word for Spirit in the Greek is pneuma, the same word we get for wind. It can also be translated that way. Have you ever, any of you ever tried to control the wind? It doesn't work. You cannot move the wind, but the wind can certainly move you. We've seen that this week, haven't we? We cannot control what happens with the wind, but the wind can certainly move us where it wishes if it wants to. That's what Jesus is showing us. The work of being born again is happening outside of us. It's happening outside of our efforts. It's happening outside of our control. People like Nicodemus already had God figured out already had arrived. And with this comes this transactionary understanding of God. And and see if this sounds vaguely familiar to you. In effect, you are able to wield God like a weapon. God is under your control because if you behave, if you act the way you're supposed to, that unlocks God doing what He's supposed to for you. And so, therefore, if I obey, I can expect To take God like the tool in my hand, like the weapon I want Him to be, and use Him for my means, for the means of my own power. This transactionary understanding of faith takes our behavior and turns it into a tool of manipulation. Most of the time, it sounds more like a threat than it is an invitation to be born again. You see on the picture here on the screen, a lot of us who are unbelieving, the first experience you have with the phrase, born again, comes from picket signs. It comes from people screaming that you must be born again. Again. It feels like a threat and not an invitation. A friend told me this week as we had lunch together that the first experience that she had with Christians was that I told her she was going to hell, the very first experience. And I know she's far from alone in this. Many people I know who the first experience, the continued experience of believers and the invitation of being born again has been one that sounds far more of a threat than it does an invitation into something more. We think that God is ours to wield, when we think that by transaction and by behavior, we get to use him as we will to threaten others, it is we who need to be saved. It is we who need to be born again. In this moment, what we see in this story is that Nicodemus, he had power and influence and morality. He had knowledge. He had even the right answer about Jesus because he was from God. But he did not have Jesus. He did not have faith in Jesus. The person that here is being called by Jesus to this new birth, to use kind of a modern lens for our understanding, is not the one who's closing down the bar on Sunday night. He's the one who's sitting in the front row on Sunday morning. He's not the pagan out there living loose and free. He is the morally upright, well-behaved, right-voting, Bible-believing Christian who is convinced that he's already arrived. That's who Jesus is calling to be born again. The one being called to be born again is the last person that believes they actually need it. And if you've only ever lived your life as if you've already spiritually arrived, this kind of message for us is disorienting. And Nicodemus' question is, how can this be? And I, I, I give him credit here for, for the honesty of coming to Jesus and admitting he does not understand how this fits. A few weeks back, I talked about what it means to be disoriented in our faith, about moving from having all the right answers to having a lot of different questions about moving from this place of safety and certainty that we once felt into a place of being uncertain about things. I shared how I've had multiple conversations over the past year with people who are in this place of disorientation, of thinking they knew what God was like, then all of a sudden, like Nicodemus, you're saying, how can this be? Things aren't adding up. The God that I thought was there no longer exists. Someone else has taken his place, and it is disorienting. I think you could say here that Nicodemus is having a faith crisis, but it's a crisis not of knowledge. It's a crisis of need. It's a crisis that suddenly, it's not that I don't know the right answers. It's that I see a need in myself that I never saw before. This is a different kind of doubt. This is a different kind of disorientation that he is facing that I know many of us have felt before. Chris Green writes about this. He says, if we're honest, we have to admit that much of what passes for doubt is nothing but honest hesitation, the inevitable upshot of generations of poor, or bad teaching, teaching which trades in simplicities and cheap certainties, often eschewing pain at all costs, leaving us to feel that our salvation depends not on the mystery of faith, sustained by God's devotion to us, but on our own grasp of our own beliefs or on the intensity of our desire for religious experiences, translated that you have based your faith on how well you thought you knew everything and on how much you felt it when you gathered for worship or when you read your Bible or when you prayed. And when you don't feel it, when you don't understand it, things become disoriented. I wonder, though, if what has felt like a faith crisis to many of us is actually God beginning to bring us to being born again. I wonder if what we thought we knew, what we were afraid of leaving behind, like Nicodemus, is actually an invitation from Jesus to see him in a way we've never seen him before. Nicodemus was actually given a gift here. He's given this gift of God being unsure in him. He was never far. In fact, as a Pharisee, he and Jesus had plenty of, in common, so much in common that some scholars even wonder if Jesus was a rogue Pharisee. If Jesus, because of his beliefs, had so much in common, there was not that big of a moral and religious difference between what was happening here, and yet he did not have Jesus. I wonder if many of us are right there with him. I wonder if we are insiders to the degree that we've lost sight of who we actually are we 've grown up around church and the Bible and Christianity all of our lives just enough to make us comfortable, or maybe it used to make us comfortable and now it doesn 't you know back in two thousand and thirteen Barna Research released some city specific um, research on uh, the, the, the religious makeup of Different cities. I I, I got a hold of the one for Lexington, Kentucky, and if my memory serves me right, 75% of people who were surveyed in Lexington were considered by their standards casual Christians, meaning they considered themselves to be Jesus' followers, but they had no discernible practices that actually showed that to be the case. 75%. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think Lexington's a city full of a bunch of Nicodemuses, man, a bunch of people who are highly churched but under haven't received this new birth, this new vision of who Jesus is. Maybe right now for you, the only thing that feels certain is how uncertain you feel about everything, and if that's you, I don't want you to feel like the outsider. I want you to feel like maybe Jesus is inviting you to be born again, to see with fresh eyes. Maybe what you feel is not God's judgment, but it's God's mercy. Maybe you're being invited into new birth. Tradition holds later on that Nicodemus eventually becomes a disciple of Jesus. He's mentioned a couple more times in the Gospels, and, and he ends up, as, as tradition holds, losing all of his religious power and being exiled out of Jerusalem and it might not have happened that night, but Nicodemus later on eventually is born again. And later in the New Testament, we, we hear of another Pharisee of Pharisees who also thought he knew what God was like and had to reconsider everything all over again. Philippians 3 talks about it. He, this is Paul, a Pharisee, speaking out really internally, I think, probably the same thing that Nicodemus was going through. He says if Someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. My modern understanding, I've been to every Bible study. I have voted in every election. I voted right in every election. I've been to seminary. I attend church every weekend. But Paul says this not to impress. He says that because of what he's about to say. He says, whatever were gains to me, I I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I hope you know that word garbage in the Greek is this word skubala Say that with me, skubala You just cussed, because in the Greek... This word is a word that, if I said in English, would get me a lot of strongly worded emails, and knowing this congregation, it would be strongly worded in the positive, but that shouldn 't be a very good <laughs> sign of where we are the The closest i 'll come to it is is crap, but it 's more. Paul uses the strongest possible language to say all of his Religious credentials and reputation is crap considered to knowing Jesus. All of it. Paul began the process after this Damascus Road experience with Jesus of unlearning everything he thought he knew about God and relearning everything in light of Jesus. That's what matters for us today. What matters is whether or not we are willing to take a fresh start, whether or not we're willing to begin unlearning and relearning. And maybe for you that is today, you're a person who's walked in here and you've never heard about Jesus or you don't really feel like you are a Christian and this is brand new, but I would assume that for most of us very churched people that we need to consider whether we're being invited to be born again, whether we're being invited to unlearn and relearn everything in light of Jesus. The next verses I want to read, the last two verses in our reading today are usually used for those who stand on the outside. We use these as our flagship, at least one of them as our flagship verse that we see everywhere. But I want you to hear this today for you. Not for those people, but for you, many of us, like me, the insider. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Two reminders as we close today from these verses. When God says the world, God means you. And I'm telling you this because, as a recovering insider, the most meaningful moment of my journey in faith happened when I realized that what I believed to be true about Jesus was true for me. That God didn't just die on the cross to save us from sin, Jesus died on the cross. From me. And when I saw that, I just began weeping because suddenly a theological idea, the right answer I had about Jesus was the Jesus that met me where I was, Move from concept to friend, Move from theology to father, Move from religion to nearness. And I want that to happen for you, too. The second verse, and finally today, says, the Son did not come to condemn the world, but to save it through him. May we get that tattooed on our minds and hearts that we are not a people of condemnation, but we are a people of salvation. And we must choose to leave behind what is condemning and move into What is inviting and saving. So I want to close today in prayer. Lord, I you know me. You you know my heart. You know that I am the kid who is in church every time the door opened. I am the insider. And I know many of us here today sit in these chairs having years and years and years and years of experience. And walls like this, singing songs like this, believing ideas like this. And maybe today we can allow ourselves to enter into that disorienting new birth, the calmness where we suddenly lose control and radically surrender to you. There are so many things that we need to unlearn, Jesus. As a church, as a whole, but also as individuals. Unlearning our sin, unlearning our prejudice, unlearning our mistrust, unlearning our division, unlearning how we see our neighbors who are different from us and relearning everything with your eyes, Jesus. Not as an idea, not as a right answer on a theological exam, but as our friend who walks with us, who carries the cross right beside us and invites us to do the same. So would you save us from our religion? Would you save us from our goodness? Would you save us from our right answers? And would you give us yourself in its place? Because everything God is truly, it's all garbage. It's all crap. Next, knowing Jesus. May we know